This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman. And I'm Min Dariwal. And welcome to The Loop. Our city is home to a very large and very diverse Indigenous community. You know, there's so many artists, musicians and historians, authors, professionals, mm-hmm. whose work reflects the connection to their culture and the significance of what that means. And you can find that all across Edmonton. Yeah. And, and you know, you look back at the work that we do and we've had the privilege and, you know, we've been fortunate enough to, to talk to a lot of those folks. Absolutely. Which has been amazing. And, of course, uh, this month, June, is National Indigenous Month, and uh, all month events will celebrate and recognize the history and cultural practices of Indigenous people right across our country. And in Alberta and Edmonton, we've already seen powwows, art shows, gatherings, and so much more. So yeah. uh, there is a lot to see and there's a lot going on. Well, there's just so many ways to engage, I think, too. When we talk about all of these businesses and musicians and professionals, yeah. right? I think, uh, like, whether it's just something as simple as engaging with Indigenous business, we mm-hmm. have so many incredible ones in the city, whether that's through restaurants or artwork or food. Right. Um, you know, I got to do a really cool story about a couple of female-run Indigenous businesses, including one uh, Indigenous box, which... The whole goal is just to create this kind of economy right. that can support these smaller indigenous businesses and connect folks to them. Yeah. Um, I just it, it, there are really small and very meaningful actions that you can take throughout the month to engage and learn about stuff that's right around you. For sure, and yeah, you can and you can do it all from the comforts of your home if you if you so choose, right? I mean, uh, but yeah, definitely you can get out there. I think of all the different places where I mean you know indigenous art is so prolific yeah. and you you get to meet people just through our work and I and I was trying to think of over the last couple of years just uh, um, you know people that I've met that kind of really stood out and, and certainly one of them was uh, an artist a tattoo artist as well uh, Tristan Jenny Sanderson and uh, it was a picture that she had um, put out on her Instagram I think it was and it just ended up just going viral yeah. and people getting in touch with her from all over the place. And she actually got uh, an email from somebody in Omaha uh, who wanted, who asked her if if he could get permission to put her piece of art, if he could get it tattooed. No way. On himself. Yeah. And it it was amazing. So I ended up going and talking to her, the significance of this picture. And, um, you know, she, it was just, it was amazing. And and basically the picture is of of an indigenous woman uh, and a and a bloody hand that right. covers part of her face, right? To you know, in significance of um, missing to, and murdered indigenous, missing and murdered indigenous women, women yeah. and to recognize that, and um, yeah, a lot of her art, predominantly most of her art, and uh, you know, her tattoo work uh, has to do with uh, her culture. So um, I don't know if I would have ever met her yeah. had it not been for that encounter because of uh, her story. But, yeah. Um, no, we're, I mean, we're super lucky in our line of work absolutely. that we get to engage with us all the time. But, um, you know, it, it's a critical part of this month, too, I think. It, it, Indigenous Peoples Day itself. It's June 21st. Mm-hmm. And it's all about reclaiming power and place and reconnecting with culture and recognizing all the ways that that's already happening because of the work that Indigenous communities are doing. And so on today's episode, that's what we hope to talk about. Then put your tongs here and we're good. There. Straight up, I can use this one. 
One act of reclamation that's happening across the country is food. The idea of returning to the land, hunting, eating, and preparing food in traditional foodways is gaining a lot of steam. And in Northern Alberta First Nations, it's found its way into some schools. CBC producer Arielle Fournier took a trip to check this program out. Hello, Arielle. Hey, Claire. So tell me about this school food program. What is it? So the idea, it was started by Clifford Gladue. He's the food manager for a school board called Kitaski now. So they oversee six schools in five First Nations in northern Alberta, sort of near the Peace River High Prairie region. So the idea was that he wanted to get fresh food into schools. That was the first thing he wanted to do because he saw that there was a lot of processed food and he was really passionate about it because his kids go there and he's mm. been a chef and he really didn't like seeing how unhealthy the food was. And he had a lot of processed food growing up, so he really wanted to make a change in his community. And by extension, he wanted to use what the resources that they had right there in that area. So that meant introducing wild game and hunting huh. is a traditional practice yeah. there. So getting local hunters involved and then getting that wild game on the plates into school lunches on a regular basis. So that was the idea. I like it. a very cool take on like the, you know, it's e- eating locally. A hundred percent. It could not get more local <laughs> for these kids as we saw it than this. Yeah, and I think there there are a lot of stories coming out now too, but ideas like land-based learning and kind of these more cultural practices coming into play. How does this fit into that kind of larger trend that we hear about? Yeah. So these schools actually already have a land-based learning. They have land-based learning teachers. They have education. So they're already learning about hunting practices, about trapping, about um, gathering medicine Mm. on the land. So they actually are learning in the classroom a lot about how some of these food practices can apply to their day-to-day life. So then having this meal plan really shows how this is applicable to our contemporary life and how this can be used and actually nourish us. It's not just going on a nature walk with your teacher. It's not just something that you are learning about because you want to get in touch with your traditions. These traditions have value and can teach people about sovereignty and can actually be applied for sovereignty in very practical ways. Yeah, it's moving it beyond the idea of just a classroom to like actual action and like yeah, kind of- and. I think that that that's a big part of it. And I think, you know, like we as we went out there to a cultural camp to Mm -hmm. see and, you you know, teenagers, um, I think that they're interested in their traditions, but they're also interested in TikTok and their phones. And so I think that when you show people that these skills mean you can have delicious food, I think (laughs) that often brings that lesson home in a very real way. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, so you actually went there. You went up to, I believe it was Lubicon Lake, right? That's right. So Lubicon Lake Band, they have a cultural camp on the land there. So that was really great to see because we got to see their land-based learning classes in action and then got to see this meal plan being served to the kids who were at the camp. So it was a bunch of high school students from all five of the First Nations who were there to do this learning. And a lot of that involved food. Mm-hmm. And then they got to have, for lunch, they were having moose stew. And mm-hmm. for dinner, they were having moose steaks. And uh, we very generously got to eat some of that food as well, which <laughs> How was, was it? really tasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, And so that was a really enjoyable experience. What, what did you see when you were there, kind of this process? Because it wasn't just the serving of the food, right? You actually kind of got to see, I think I saw a picture of like a bear. Yeah. 
You did, yeah. You did see a bear. <laughs> I saw a picture of a bear. <laughs> yeah, so we when we arrived, um, part of the reason we wanted to go up that day to the cultural camp is that we were told that this was going to be day that the students were learning about skinning and butchering a buffalo. Oh. But when we arrived, we found out that because the buffalo had been caught earlier, oh. it turned out that they had already butchered the buffalo on another day. So <laughs> we were wondering if we were going to see much. Right. And then we got there that morning and we discovered that the night before – they had come across a black bear. It was very active bear season. And uh, the they that's what they had to um, show the kids. So they skinned and butchered a black bear wow. that morning before lunch. So that's how they started their day. And then later in the afternoon, they were making sausages out of the buffalo. They were making dry meat. They were smoking that uh, out of the buffalo as well. So, yeah, we got to really see like from – the beginning of the process to the plate, how some of this would happen. Did anything surprise you while you were there covering it? You'd learned about the story, you'd heard about it, you'd gone up. Did anything kind of knock you off your feet while you were up there? I knew from talking to Clifford, the food manager, I knew that this was a lot of work. Uh, one thing that, that I didn't know until we talked to him was that in order for him to get this approved, he had to become a food inspector, he had to inspect the meat himself because Whoa. to send that to federal officials would have taken too long. If you have, if you're serving meat in schools multiple times a month, to have to send samples to federal officials every single time would be too much. a huge roadblock. So he had to become certified himself. And I think there were just a lot of little moments where I realized just the how much of a difference this could make in the community and has made in the community. They ran out of food the night before, um, just a few supplies. Mm -hmm. But uh, Clifford had to drive to Peace River the night before to get groceries. So that's a three-hour trip Wow! just to pick up more groceries for the night. So it's like when you can sustain yourself, how much of a difference that makes um, was really impressive. And then it was also just fun to see that they really – the school really wanted to put an emphasis on – bridging traditions with the new so at the same time they were learning about film so that was kind of fun the yeah. kids were also interested in our equipment yeah. and wanted to <laughs> try stuff cameras. out yeah so they were really engaged with that and then uh they were they were flying drones and so you get to see these aerial views of the area so yeah i, I think it was um really interesting to see the mix of the new and the old and i really enjoyed that part of it we have a um, moose heart going moose nose uh, we got, we're going to have fried meat and um, bannock. Can't remember what else we have right now. <laughs> yeah. How it all started. An elder gave me this document called the Alberta First Nations Sovereignty Declaration. So I read it. But two or three days after, I asked if I could try to present this to the board and bring it into the schools, trying to bring everything back. So many First Nations are losing their identity, their ways of living and traditions. So, and I wanted to bring that into school. Ooh, that's kind of hot. That is moose nose. Yeah. And that's water. And that's water. <laughs> we tried uh, doing bison. We did deer. We brought in salmon, uh, duck breast. One thing that the students loved were the moose meat. It's the best. you got to try it once in your life. 
It's just so good. I have it anyway. It's just one of our very, our most traditional foods, I think. All I had in school was processed foods. And I'm not blaming anybody, but processed foods has so many chemicals, so many things in them. And I became diabetic. So I wanted to make a change in the community. And I wanted to bring in more healthy options for our students. There you go. We sat down with a menu. I told all the cooks we were getting rid of all the processed foods. It's been, what, four years now. At least 90% of the processed foods is eliminated from our menu. So everything is homemade now in, in the schools. And this past year, the cooks, been learn they learned how to make bread from scratch now, how to make sauces from scratch. Donna, you want a bannock? Want a bannock? Majority of the cooks in this kitchen here today are like their family. I have my grandma in there, my mother. It's, it's good to be able to pass a little piece of that on to them and to be a part of exposing the kids that aren't usually exposed to our culture. It's great, it's a good feeling. They, they like it, so that's pretty cool, but it's like the tongue and all the stuff like that. Some are a little iffy on it, but the way my mom makes it, they love it. It was a lot of work, a lot of traveling, a lot of talking. It was about nine months. But it would have take, taken longer, but I had told them I wanted to get this program going for next school year. So I was pushing them. I met them every day because I wanted to get this going, this program. I had to learn and inspect the meat. The, our hunters had to be trained. We had to teach them how to fill out these forms. Same with our cooks had to learn how to fill out these forms. Here, I'll put your plate up here. There was times that I wanted to stop it because I was facing so many obstacles. There were people were telling me that it would never happen, they don't do it, the government controls us. And then I told them, I said, watch me and I'll do it. That, that's what really pushed me. So I kept going, I pushed it. I kept talking to the government, uh, the health inspectors. I got the dietitians involved because I wanted, I wanted our First Nation food, traditional food, right, to be also healthy. <laughs> Staff are taking students out in the bush, learning more stuff from the land. I never had that when I was younger. Nobody taught me how to live off the land. How many of you have skinned a bear before? Nobody? I wanted to bring more stuff into the into our food service program. I wanted to learn more of the herbs and the stuff from the land of what we could bring in for the students and how we could make it more healthier. Slowly come up and then it'll smoke. There we go. We have a burn offering on a piece of dry meat. Okay, awesome. The ancestors are hungry. Just grew up eating it and you just get so used to it that you just look forward to eating it because it's just so good. When you eat that food, it's like you acknowledge the fact that our ancestors used to live off this food, so it's just that much better, you know? I want my kids to know where they come from. And I want the kids to know how my grandparents, how they lived off the land. 
So when I talked to my daughter about it, I asked her how she felt having wild game in the school. I said, you know the government won't allow that. And I told her, I said, you know what? The government allowed it. So we're starting that program. Then my daughter looked at me. She said to me, she said, you did it. Do you want to try this one? Yeah. I like it. Medium rare. Right now, I'm kind of speechless because we, we are leading the way to bring all this back. I'll just have the. Do you want anything else? Oh, you don't touch my feet. There you go. There you go. Something we're seeing, I think at least a lot more of in Edmonton, uh, and rightfully so, is Indigenous collaboration in public spaces. Some of it, Mm -hmm. you know, we're seeing renaming of places, um, but a lot of it is also just intentionally carving out parks or buildings or artwork, locations in the city that really do kind of celebrate and share in the culture and history of the city's Métis and First Nations communities. And I know this is something, as we talked about earlier, like we get to cover this stuff in our work all the time. And I think for a lot of people in our city, you probably drive by buildings or drive by spaces or places and you you don't realize the significance or the connection it has to uh, our indigenous uh, community or members of that community. Absolutely. And um, and, and so, you know, one of those examples is the the Pandennis building, which is on Jasper Avenue. It's, It's basically just about a block. Um, east of uh, the Hardware Grill, or right. where the Hardware Grill is on the corner there. And it's that old brick building. It looks like it's been under construction for years yeah. and years. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that that is a, a business that, that I think they're producing some sort of hotel there. But it, it is also a place where, um, you know, it, it's kind of like a, um, you know, mo- not, not a mobile art gallery, but there's, you know, different uh, works that are coming and going through there. And um, uh, unseated, Voices of the Land, which is um, something that was uh, put together by Douglas Cardinal. He, you know, he involved him working with 18 different architects and designers. Wow. And so they they launched that. I think it was during the pandemic that, you know, it launched in Venice. Uh, it's worldwide. And, I mean, Douglas Cardinal, is, his work is prolific. Oh, he's uh, huge. Yeah, he's and a incredible. legend in our country, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it's. I think it's. Uh, it was supposed to come through this spring, but uh, the official launch is, I think, in the fall. But, um, you know, it's, it's basically work that connects uh, Indigenous uh, folks to the spirits and, and to the land. And so, uh, you know, but you, you drive by that building, you'd never know. Yeah. Right? You'd never know it. But I, I know coming this fall that, uh, you know, word is going to get out. And definitely it's, it's something that people should go and take the time to see and, uh, you know, see just how amazing that work is. Yeah, I think that's the really cool part about so many of these Indigenous art installations is they are in places that people occupy and they're accessible, yeah. spaces that you can walk through and engage. Right. Um, and there's no limitations, right? It's not like, like obviously, no offense to full-on art galleries and stuff, but, sure. you know, you have to go in and, and pay There's sometimes. a formal way of doing it, yeah. Exactly, but that kind of informal existence is, is really powerful, mm-hmm. and especially to so many... We have such a diverse community in Edmonton to make that possible for everyone. Right. Um, and, and I think those kind of walkthrough kind of experiences yeah. are powerful. And there is a new one that is coming up, too. Um, it's in the middle of construction. It's Kinistina Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sits on 96th Street in Boyle Street. Uh, it's going to open in the fall. 
But this is a really cool one, too, because the redesign is entirely about bringing these folks together, bringing anyone from the community to come into the space. And and there's a large boardwalk. They're going to have a water feature. But mostly there's this large red canopy that's already in place, which if you look at it from above, it's it looks really cool. It's like a big kind of swoop. But it is a a really powerful project of community building, but it's also got a really deep meaning for the person behind it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tiffany Shaw Collins is the architect and the interdisciplinary artist who's reimagining the space. She's Métis and actually a core member of Edmonton's OTG1 Contemporary Art Collective. And so we decided at The Loop... We wanted to go check this place right. out. It's not open fully yet, um, but we actually sent CBC's Adrian Lamb on a quest for the loop to visit Tiffany and get a sense of what this space means to her. I love a boardwalk too. Such a good feeling on your feet. It's so soft and comforting and inviting, I think. Well, the other thing too is another sound they might want to pick up is the sound here. It's the aluminum panels. So these are big, large aluminum panels that make it very possible for them to touch the ground in a structural way. Okay, well, where we are right now is at Kinistanaw Park, which is just east of the downtown by a block or two. And this area sometimes is called the quarters, although that can sometimes not be a content that can be a contentious name as well. And this is the former um, Chinatown location as well. Now we're sitting in the shade, which is a bonus because it's a beautiful day. Tell me what is providing the shade. Oh, this beautiful red canopy that extends over one full block. And uh, the canopy has a few integrative pieces. One is some lighting within the canopy, but then also this artwork that I am um, describing is called the family pattern. And so this was a joint effort between Dialogue and myself as an artist to make this pattern come in and out of the canopy. Originally with the concept, they talked about this canopy weaving in and out as the fabric of the park itself uh, or the thread. And I really resonate with that idea because I like to deal with my artwork as it comes in and out of structures because it's around the idea of cultural erasure and resiliency. So the pattern, describe it for people who haven't seen the work. The pattern itself is known as a Cree Métis Northern beading pattern. What I really love about beading works, it's this is a, well, just to skip back, this is a floral artwork pattern by my great-grandmother. She was a moccasin maker in Fort McMurray, and so the pattern is identified as a Northern Cree Métis beading pattern. You can see uh, beading patterns by uh, the Blackfoot. It looks totally different. So this is a place to make people feel very welcome. So it's very, um, I guess, curvilinear is an architectural word we could use, but it's lots of rounded edges. And um, the pattern is blown up really big, really, really big so that it's bigger than yourself. And uh, it's based on this idea of super graphics, which was deployed in the 60s and the 70s, where these graphics were made really, really big for wayfinding and things like that. And so it's a mix between my great-grandmother's Métis beading pattern, but then also this contemporary sense around graphics itself. It's not the first time I've seen this pattern (laughs) pop up in your work. Describe where else it's woven its way in. Okay, so this pattern was actually first deployed at the Indigenous Art Park in a piece I have there called Pehanan, uh, which means the waiting place, and it is in the core 10 of the third step in the art park there, and I wanted to, this is just a continuation, I use this pattern a lot actually in my smaller pieces of artwork as well as this large piece, and so I'm just going to keep blowing it up bigger and bigger and bigger until someone tells me to stop. 
What do you think your grandmother would say if she could see it here in this park? Uh, well, my grandmother hasn't seen this work yet um, that I know of, but my family is fairly, I mean, they're very proud about what I do, and um, but they're not boastful, which is what I love about my family. So I think she would be delighted for sure. My mom did see it before she died, and she really loved it. I asked her if she felt like, Okay, so the reason why I wanted the park, the piece here, is to make people feel welcome. Because I know just based on my own projects in this area, I used to work on the Boyle Street Community Center with um, ATB Architects before they changed to Stantec. And I also worked on the YMCA Transitional Housing a little bit. And I also had my own transitional community garden here a few years ago. And now we have that with Otetsi One. So I have experience to know that this area is really well um embraced by the people that live here um, but I know that there's also a large number of people who are houseless and there's sex work in the area too and I really want everyone to feel safe and so this pattern I know will feel comfortable to a lot of people in the area that are frequenting whether they're just visiting or passing through or live in this area um, and so when I talked to my mom about that concept she said she feels like people will have that feeling she realized right away that it was our family pattern when I just sent her images without telling her what it was and that felt for me like that was just the best thing for me is that she loved it and that it had meaning for her and our family that for me that was all that mattered yeah I mean how great is it that for your mom you know to be able to see See herself yeah yeah Yeah, I think it's this pattern here is really for her to see herself as well as for other people and people know about beading very well will know this is a cream AT beading pattern so this is for them and it also just looks like a lovely pattern for people who don't know what it is referencing Um, but this is really meant to be for indigenous people that recognize this patterning and that's what the city really still is missing in large part is this original um, indigenous identity into the fabric of its buildings into the fabric of the public garden to the fabric of the city and so this is just some of the many works that in this city has but there's just not enough still I think in my opinion I think one thing that's really interesting is you know there in the media three people had died here not that long ago and uh, from overdose what was really important for me to know and to feel about those um, tragic passings is that I felt really hopeful that they were together in this park in this space rather than in a place that was less about themselves and less you know provided less dignity to them in their space and so it fueled me to feel like the work that I'm doing is more so important to make sure that everyone has this welcoming nature so that people can experience things greater than themselves and um while I do not wish for that to persist in our city because I think that it's a very real problem that continues to keep exploding and expanding unfortunately um, I think places like this allow for dignity and calmness and welcome um, a welcome quality that we could see in a lot more places in this area uh, well actually okay so actually the real reason why I create public art is actually for my brother and he would never describe himself as homeless um, I've asked him a few times but I don't always know where he is and sometimes he's in and out of incarceration and so I always want to provide a space for him to feel hopefulness and a space where he feels like he's worthy so these places are actually for him and it is also to help um, 
create more connections with my family because I love understanding how they experience their own indigeneity, um, but also to keep moving our culture forward. You know, we have to keep expressing ourselves in new ways. And I think by using my great-grandmother's beading pattern, I'm refining it and moving it just forward the way that she was um, because sometimes she would embroider it, sometimes she would um, knit it, or sometimes uh, she would sew it or beat it. And so I'm just water jet cutting it, I'm laser cutting it, I'm vinyl cutting it. And it's just new methods that we have available to us today um, utilizing the same thing. And so I think for my family, they're always very proud over their Métis heritage, and this is one way of doing it. But I don't think that they see my work any more important than some of my other family members who are just working in the day-to-day, staying fully employed and living their beautiful lives with their children and things like that. When you talk about these pieces, they're permanent. I can touch them. I can feel them. I can... I mean, so how how does that differ from we look at the day, we look at the month, the celebrations in a temporal way? Well, if we're talking about the month in general or the day of Indigenous Peoples Day... I think it's nice for others to understand that we exist, we thrive. Um, You actually will be really surprised about how people don't think we exist today. And so I think that it's important reminders for others. I think it's nice to see how the city keeps shaping itself each year with a larger, broader understanding of the complexity of how we live in today and how we have larger issues like um, clean water issues, we have housing issues, we have addictions, diabetes, Um, children in apprehension. I could go on. The list goes on. And all of this public artwork, I think, seeks to look at the underbelly of all that to provide joy and um, beauty. And I think that the month allows for that spotlight, but it is really more important to engage with Indigenous people all the time. You know, what is the way that you're investing in these communities? And I know that sometimes it can feel so helpless, but there really is a way of just connecting with people in subtle ways. and so that's really where I'm excited for my artwork to go is to allow to lift up and reveal these histories that we try to hide so much. Um, so not to sort of remove the shame and to bring out the joy and the um, resiliency of, of all of our cultures coming together. The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton. And our team is Min Darwal, Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haberstock, Olivia O, oh, and James Evans. Our theme music is Train Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonnyman. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to check out Indigenous History Month content, there are Indigenous maps on CBC Edmonton's website. We talked about them last week. It's all part of a project tracking culture across Treaty 6. And on June 21st, CBC will have a full day of original programming showcasing First Nations, Métis, and Inuit perspectives. And you can check that out wherever you find CBC. Yeah, watch and listen um, to a lot of different content that will be out uh, on that day and as always we appreciate you taking the time uh, whenever it is or was to listen (laughs) to us and uh, of course there's always so much more to know you can get in touch with us here at the loop we're of course here every friday you can leave us a rating and a review wherever you download the show and if you want to get in touch we have an email the loop at cbc.ca the hashtag the loop cbc on social media or you can reach out to us on twitter i am at min darwall I'm at Nami Knob. And of course, follow the show on CBC Listen or your favorite podcasting app. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.